Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to Legitimate. I'm Rochelle Poulton, and this is my husband, Mike Poulton, and this is Legitimate, where we give you our legitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm Mike Poulton. I'm the managing partner at Poulton & Naroyan, a law firm here in Phoenix, also a real estate investor, uh, inventor, professional pyrotechnician, and entrepreneur, which sounds pretty great when you say it that way, but... Because <laughs> it is. <laughs> go, go ahead, Rochelle. Introduce yourself. <laughs> My name is Rochelle Poulton. I'm a managing partner over at X-Firm, also Parachute Bankruptcy, and the Arizona Credit Law Group. And I have a couple other businesses that do credit repair, student loan help, and debt settlements. Uh, I'm also an author, a public speaker. We have the podcast and a real estate agent with Realty Executives, and we're all around pretty freaking awesome. Oh, bless you, Bobby. Uh, that's Bobby. That's our dog. She likes to hang out during the podcast <laughs> underneath the table. and Right by her legs. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Rochelle, let's do the intro for today's topic. All right. Today, we're talking about real estate investing. Everyone's wondering, should I invest in real estate, even though there's a pandemic happening? And the answer is, Yes, it's always a good time to invest in real estate, especially when you are working with the right team. But first, we're going to cover the rackets because they're still happening. <laughs> they're always happening. They're always freaking <laughs> happening. So, What are our rackets for today, Rochelle? We got two. First up, coronavirus antibody test scam. So with coronavirus right now, there's a lot of random individuals going around calling, texting, emailing, requesting that you get an antibody test for coronavirus and they want your personal info and your health insurance information and it's a scam. They are not actually providing you with any services, but they are billing your health insurance company for random uh, tests and treatments that you're not actually receiving. It's a really big deal. It is still going on. The FBI is investigating. So if you are a victim you need to contact the FBI. It's a big deal. This is a really big problem that we're still having. So how can you tell if it's a scam? Well, if it's a company you've never heard of, that is a red flag. If they're calling and texting you, that's a red flag. No one has time for that. And nobody is doing that who is legitimate. And you should be able to Google them. If they say they're with a certain company, you should be able to look them up online and be able to call back the phone number and have a company answer. So always verify with any scam advice is protect yourself, check it out, Google it, and see if it's legit. So in other words, these are people who are texting and calling people randomly, telling them that they should get a test, and then collecting their personal information and billing their insurance as if they had actually been given testing or treatment when they didn't actually do anything. Exactly. So if you get an unsolicited call saying that you need to get an antibody test or that you should get an antibody test, perhaps ignore that call. Consider getting a test anyways, but if you're going to get a test, go look for your testing services independently. Look it up online. Go through your healthcare providers. Uh, don't rely on the information that you get from an unsolicited phone call or text message because that very well may be leading you to this scan. Yes. All right. That's number one. What's number two? Credit card debt. So, what people can do about it. <laughs> this is just, this isn't a specific scam. Then. No. This is just the, the usual 
grind of dealing with consumer credit? Dealing with a lot of credit card debt these days is a little bit rough. There are a lot of programs. Almost every single credit card company is offering some type of monthly forbearance plan. You've got to sit on hold for two hours. You've got to talk to probably four or five different people, get transferred everywhere, but they will offer you relief on your payments. Some will actually reduce your interest rate to something normal and others will let you skip payment for a month and then you got to call back and get back in the program and some companies have actually decided to settle with you even if you're in forbearance and you're not currently late like they're looking at taking like 50 percent how is that different from usual usually you got to wait uh six months before you can settle so normally you need to be in default trash your credit and then try to settle your credit card debt if you can't afford to do so. So uh, yeah, they're just skipping right to the end. They want money now. They'll take your money now. But again, you got to sit on hold and, and play the game forever. So the difference these days is that you may actually be able to make some kind of a deal on your credit cards and get a, a better outcome without having to start missing payments, basically prove that you're a default risk by defaulting on the card first. Mm -hmm. They're willing to take the leap that in this day and age with the pandemic. economy and coronavirus, perhaps people really are having a hard time paying their debts. They may be better off working with you now rather than waiting for you to file bankruptcy later. Yes. And that is also an option. So if you're drowning in credit card debt and 50% isn't going to help, uh, consult with a local bankruptcy attorney like me about uh, potentially filing for bankruptcy to alleviate yourself from debt, including credit cards. So Rochelle, when you say they may be willing to settle or take 50%, what is that process like? Because you do this every day and you deal with it all the time, but our listeners may not understand what we're talking about here. So for example, someone who owes $10,000 on a particular credit card account, they could call their credit card company, ask for forbearance, or if you're already in a forbearance plan or some kind of hardship program, ask and see if they would be willing to negotiate a settlement. And they may say, okay, well, if you can pay us $5,000 by the end of the month, we'll close out the account and call it good. And that would be a 50% offer. And that's a great deal. They're not going to delete it from your credit report. They're not like none of that. Just take the deal, save the money and move on. So in order to make that work, you've got to have the cash to pay the settlement. Yes. Are there any tips for people on how they can make that work? Is there uh, a process or a, a way that you know of that people can get that kind of cash to pay a lump sum settlement if they don't have the savings? Nope. All right. So you either have the savings or it's not going to work for you. Yes. And okay. if you've got a rainy day fund, I don't know if you noticed, but it is like pouring outside. <laughs> this is what it's for. Huh? Yep. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Conserve your capital and uh, do what you can. But if you're not in that boat, then this is the right episode for you because we were talking about real estate investing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're jumping into next, the opposite end of the consumer finance spectrum. If yes. you have extra cash these days, if you have uninvested capital and you're wondering what to do with it, um, you may be wondering about real estate. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of today's episode. But Investing first, in real estate. the LBL moment. That's right. We've got to do our LBL moment. Law, business, and life. I don't know how you forgot. I don't know how I forgot either. <laughs> the law moment for today, we want to talk about all of the COVID-19 assistance programs that 
are coming to an end that you should be aware of. And first up is the Rental Eviction Prevention Assistance Program. So this was that moratorium on the eviction process that you heard about. Not many people actually got approved for it, but it is a program that's been out there. It's still valid through the end of July. And if this is your first time hearing about it or you know someone who needs it, they can still apply online. There is a process for that and you should really look into it if you need the help. But it does end at the end of July, which means we're going to see probably a ton more evictions in the next couple of months. Not ideal, but there's all kinds of programs out there for low-income housing and assistance like that. But just be aware for your family and friends that need may need income, um, well, rental assistance, that program's coming to an end this month. The other one is the <laughs> federal pandemic unemployment compensation. So this is the extra $600 a week uh, unemployment benefit that many people are involved in. And that ends at the end of July. It's July 25th is the end date for that sucker. And the problem is uh, we have a lot of unemployment in the country right now, specifically in Arizona. So if you want them to extend that, you need to tell your local Congress, your legislature, your governors, your council members, tell them that you still think we need this program if you uh, and have them advocate for it to be extended. If you don't so, care, no problem. This is a federal program. It's a federal so program. In order for this to continue, we would need an extension passed by the federal government. That seems unlikely to occur yes. based on the positioning of both parties recently in the last week or so. Uh, talking about this issue in particular, it seems unlikely that there will be an approval of the same program on an ongoing basis. States could individually do their own similar programs. So the better bet may be to lobby state legislators rather than federal legislators. Um, I'm not sure we're going to see a whole lot more federal assistance at this point. But again, it's going to depend on what the pandemic does because things are not slowing down. Uh, if we see widespread closures again around the country, then we may need that kind of a program and there may be enough of a need that the federal government will come forward and do it. Um, seems unlikely though. So unfortunately, we probably all need to plan to get back to work or live from savings if we've got them, but it's going to be a rough time as these programs come to an end. Yeah. It's like the get back to work part is the difficult part because sure there's is. not like jobs to get no. back to. So uh, creative income generation, I suspect we will see a lot more entrepreneurs, a lot more Uber drivers, and a lot of people filling random needs. So plan ahead. Those programs are coming to an end. And the last one, of course, is under the CARES Act with mortgage forbearance. That ends in August. So if you're in those programs, stay aware of those dates because uh, payments will become due and you do not want to be late because the second you're late, you are actually going to be like three, four, even five months late and they'll start foreclosure. So just stay aware, be cognizant, and that's our law moment. <laughs> the business moment also has to do with pandemic relief. We're coming up on the time to submit a PPP loan forgiveness paperwork. So this is going to be complicated, very much like the original PPP loan process was. I think for any of you who went through that, uh, you'd probably agree that it was not managed all that well, either by the government or the lending institutions. But in the end, a lot of people got money. Uh, the loans did come through. Both of our law firms got money. So that works out well. And uh, now we're looking at how to deal with this loan forgiveness situation. 
And what we've kept hearing all throughout the process is that, well, eventually there's going to be an application, there's going to be a process, we'll let you know. Uh, looks like the time is coming for them to let us know. Chase just sent out messages to customers last week saying that they will be accepting PPP forgiveness applications sometime in August. So you're looking at about another month to get this all put together, uh, get your paperwork done. And <clears throat> it appears that now you can download the forgiveness paperwork directly from the SBA website. Just Google it, PPA yep. forgiveness application, and start getting your paperwork together. So you yeah. actually have to have proof of what you spent your money on. So getting that documentation, if you have an accountant or if you're a solo and you're doing it on your own, you need to get that paperwork together and now's the time to start doing it. I would suspect that this is going to be a lot like the original loan process mm -hmm. where this paperwork may not be the exact same paperwork that your lender requires. Yep. So they'll tell you that this is a uniform application, but then it ends up not being the same thing. But it's going to have a lot of the same elements like that first loan application did. Like the documents so that you're going to need. The documents you're going to need are probably going to be the same. The general process is going to be the same. So you might as well get that package put together now. That way, when your bank gives you the real documents later, perhaps in late July, early August, whenever the heck they get around Next to it. Next year, whatever. Yeah, whenever it happens, <laughs> uh, then you're, you're going to have it in order. Because if this is anything like the first round with the loan applications, you're going to want to get the forgiveness apps in quickly in order to get processed early. Um, it's never an advantage to wait on that sort of thing. No. And if you still haven't applied for the PPP program, you still can. Depending on your lender. Yeah. yeah. So look into it if you're, you know, hurting financially and just look into it. Yep. So Absolutely. last but not least, life. What are you doing for the 4th of July? Nothing. <laughs> you may have noticed at the beginning, I introduced uh, myself and among my other professional activities, I'm a pyrotechnician. I think I mentioned that on one of our very early episodes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, it's actually the, the job that I have held longest. My very first job was working at a fireworks stand when I was in elementary school. And then shortly thereafter, uh, I started working on public fireworks displays. And I've been doing it almost every year ever since. Uh, it's been a, a parallel career path for me. So I shoot professional fireworks displays. Uh, I've been working with Fireworks Productions of Arizona uh, for the last several years doing Chandler's show at Tumbleweed Park. And it's been great, but not this year. It's canceled. So my 4th of July is going to be pretty lame compared to usual. No sweating outside, no shooting your public display for your enjoyment. We'll just be hanging out at home grilling steaks, which is a fun thing to do, but it's a little disappointing compared to blowing stuff up for your entertainment. <laughs> I know. There's a, well, Arizona PBS is actually doing a really awesome uh, show from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Uh, lots of fireworks. Um, for those of you who didn't get tickets to anything that's already sold out and you're looking for something to do, Arizona PBS is the place to watch. I will probably have a Harry Potter marathon weekend because who doesn't want to be a witch right now <laughs> wish you lived somewhere else <laughs> well that's our life moment <laughs> it's bleak but it'll be okay it'll be okay eventually all right now on to our primary topic for today real estate investment so among other things rochelle and i have both been involved in real estate for quite some time uh, but in very different ways um, stretching back long before we met each other. Mm -hmm. So I've owned a number of properties. I've invested in real estate. I currently have a commercial property, um, hold a private mortgage on a residential property, have a couple other properties. 
I'm not a big time real estate investor compared to people who do it full time for a living, but it is something I enjoy. I'm frequently involved in real estate professionally outside my own investments because I represent people who are in real estate. And a big part of my practice has been assisting with commercial leasing, with problems with real estate transactions, either in litigation or just uh, helping things go smoothly uh, to stay out of court. Uh, All of those things are part of my practice. And so I have a lot of exposure to the real estate business in Arizona. And while I'm not active with a brokerage, I am a licensed realtor. Um, I have never been active. I probably will do that at some point soon. We'll get around but to it. Why bother? Because mm-hmm. Rochelle's an agent. She's <laughs> <laughs> she's licensed and is uh, active with uh, real estate executives. Um, so go ahead and, and give us a little summary of what you've done in real estate over the course of your career. Yeah. So I started out working for a real estate brokerage in college. So we did commercial and residential, and it was awesome. I freaking fell in love with real estate. Didn't really want to sell it, but did wonder how these deals got done. So after college, I was a loan officer for a few years, and then I watched the market crash, and I ran away to law school and started studying all sorts of law, specifically a lot with real estate law. And when I got out, I started practicing in real estate law, dealing with distressed property situations. And today, I still deal with a lot of distressed property situations. I still deal with zombie second mortgages, crazy issues related to real estate, foreclosures not happened or gone wrong. If it deals with real estate, I probably have handled it. And if it's a crazy situation, I've probably solved it. So uh, I help with people wanting to buy real estate, getting them ready to go, getting their credit and finances in order. And I help people when real estate goes really wrong. And I advise a lot of people about how to smooth things over during the middle of a real estate transaction, especially when you've got like random liens or HOA issues and things like that. So a lot of fun that we deal with on this end. If it's legally complicated... That's our jam. Yes, indeed. Oh, and in a prior life, I was a construction manager. That was actually my undergrad degree, and I worked for a commercial contractor before I went to law school. So I've got a little on the construction side, and uh, I still get my hands dirty every chance I get. Oh, yeah. So, I think we each have about 20 years of experience each. That's probably about just right. about Just about there, yeah. Well, anyways, now that we're done telling you why you should listen to what we have to say, let's talk a little bit about real estate. Uh, this is just kind of a general introduction to real estate investment and how you can make money in real estate, how you can park your capital in real estate. And we're just going to go through some of the basics here uh, and talk a lot about the pitfalls. Yes. Because it has been said, and it is true, that real estate investing has created more millionaires in this country than any other market sector. Uh, It is of all the ways to get moderately rich, probably one of the most accessible. Uh, probably one of the easiest. That's not to say that it's easy, of course, but it's easier than a lot of other routes to moderate wealth. So that's something to consider. Sorry, that's our our dog again, Bobby. (laughs) We can't stop touching her. Every time we don't touch her, she rams her head into the table. She's a very sweet pupper. Yeah, you're (laughs) a good girl, Bobbles. (laughs) So things to consider first. (laughs) Things to consider, the do's, the don'ts, how to make it happen for you. Financing and more. Yeah. First and foremost, this real estate investment, like any other kind of investment, is something to do when you have some capital to invest. Uh, If you don't have any money coming in, it's a real challenge to make money in a capital-intensive kind of business, which real estate is. So we're starting with know your finances. We're starting with know your finances. Uh, You need to know what you can actually swing when it comes to real estate investment. 
often, most of the time, people looking at any kind of an investment tend to want to bite off more than they should try to chew. Yeah. While you could try to buy the most property that you possibly can get your fingers on using all financing sources and dedicating all of your assets to it, that's not going to be a very smart approach. You need to have a balanced financial portfolio overall. And that means don't put all your eggs in the real estate basket. You've got to distribute all those eggs among many baskets. And it can be tempting to go all in on a house flip project or all in on buying a fourplex or something like that um, because you think you're, you can get your hands on the financing for it. But if you don't have a stable portfolio outside of that property and outside of the real estate project that you're contemplating, that may not be a wise financial decision. And it's probably not something that a financial advisor would recommend that you do. You should wait until you have a significant amount of capital available compared to the size of the real estate project you want to take on. That way, if it doesn't go as well as you hope, it isn't likely to be a financial disaster for you. Because while you can make millions of dollars in real estate, you can also lose it all very quickly. Uh, there's a lot of risk exposure, and it does have to be done right. <laughs> yes. So one of the first things to think about, you know, is figuring out how much you can invest. And, you know, are you doing cash? Or are you doing mortgage financing? And, of course, you got to look at your credit. Your credit is going to play a role in all of this, especially if you're looking at financing any part of it. So, Go to Credit Karma, go to freecreditscore.com, take a look at your credit report and see what's happening. Because if you don't have good credit, you're kind of going to stall out, especially when it comes to doing any kind of flip or needing any kind of financing to get job done. So that's where I come in. I do that all the time. That's what I help people with. But you also need to do some kind of preliminary title search on yourself just to make sure that you're getting up to speed with any unknown liabilities you might have, like judgment liens, tax liens, random stuff that might be under your name that you didn't know about. It's really important that you get that out of the way before you start trying to apply for a mortgage because those are deal killers. Or things that aren't yours, mixed yeah. file issues. It as happens. Rochelle calls them, a large portion of what she deals with in her practice are things showing up on people's credit that don't actually belong to them. And you won't know about that until you pull your credit. And that's not something you want to run into when you're trying to close on an investment property with a short timeline. Yes. So just take a look beforehand. It's never as scary as it looks. And it's never a hurdle forever. Like you've got credit <laughs> issues or lien problems. You can still buy. Um, you just have to do some planning. Yep. Take some effort. Um, and then you want to get, well, make sure you look good on paper. You know, financially, things have to like make sense. So you need, you're going to need two years of tax returns. If you're a business owner, you're going to need a P&L that's up to date and accurate and shows what you're making. If you're a W-2 employee, you're going to need the pay stubs. You need the bank statements. And you need, most importantly, a rental or a mortgage history showing that you haven't been late in 24 months. If you're, Not even once. No, no late months. payments. No late payments on a mortgage in two years. Yeah. They don't want to give you an unnecessary second mortgage unless you're perfect with your necessary first mortgage. <laughs> really critical that yes. you're, you're current. So make sure you look good on paper and you are pretty much going to ensure smooth sailing through that financial process. If you're looking to, especially if you're looking for uh, any type of portfolio lending. What is a portfolio loan, Rochelle? <laughs> I don't know if they still call them that, but basically it's a bundle of 
properties. So you've got more than two, maybe even three or four or five or 10 properties, and you're getting a loan against all of them to help you buy more real estate. So one loan distributed among multiple properties. Yep. And typically with some kind of flexibility so you can add and remove properties from the pile. Yep. That way your whole real estate portfolio is secured across itself uh, and on one loan. Yep. So it's got advantages and disadvantages, but the advantages typically strongly outweigh the disadvantages. Disadvantages, if you default on that loan, your entire portfolio is at risk. You don't just get foreclosed on with one house, you lose the whole thing. Uh, Advantage, though, is the flexibility of being able to add and remove properties easily, scale the loan up and down based on the market. Basically, it's the professional way of handling lending against a real estate portfolio. It's something that you will need to develop a relationship with a banker to achieve. And it's something that may take you a little while unless you're investing seven figures right off the bat. Uh, If you've got a seven-figure property portfolio, you're already going to be pretty comfortable with portfolio lending. And if you're not, you should be. (laughs) If you're not, you should be. (laughs) If you've got millions in real estate, you should get comfortable with that and start talking to some local and regional banks or credit unions about that type of lending arrangement. Um, But if you're new at this and you've got capital for several properties or you've got capital for down payments on one or two and you think you're going to be able to add more in the next year or so, now is the time to start talking to those lenders. Uh, And it's probably not going to be your big banks. Rochelle, you can probably talk more about Yeah, you're never going to go to a big bank. Just skip it. You're a number. Go to a broker or a banker, someone who can actually answer your questions and care whether or not you close. (laughs) (laughs) And someone who's used to working on more customized deals. Yeah. I've got my favorites. And if you work with uh, private banking or private investment management for securities, they often are able to provide that type of lending for real estate. So for example, Morgan Stanley Um, If you've got a a securities portfolio with them, you can obtain lending for real estate portfolios by leveraging against your existing securities assets, which is definitely worth looking at. If you've got a pretty substantial securities investment portfolio, consider using that as the down payment or security for your lending on real estate investment. You don't necessarily have to sell securities to do that. You don't have to, to sell those investments and achieve cash. Uh, in order to make the deal work. Um, The whole thing is arranged around the idea of lending against your existing other assets in a different market sector. Much better approach. Yep. So it doesn't really matter if it's your first time buying a second home, buying a first home, or buying a 15th investment property, there's always something new to learn and a new way to figure it out. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So after you know your finances, you got to know what you want. Are you looking for something short-term or long-term, commercial, residential, single-family residence, or like an apartment complex, or are you looking to flip or wholesale? And if you're unfamiliar with any of those terms, you need to get familiar. (laughs) You should learn all of them. And Rochelle and I were talking before the show, we actually do plan these things a little bit. Uh, (laughs) We were talking about this segment and knowing what you want and what these different approaches to investing in real estate are. And Rochelle's point is, you should know going in what approach you're looking to do. My response to that was, "Mm, I think you should go in looking for which approach will make you the most money in your current location and market environment. Uh, You should consider all of these options. However, not all of them are likely to be viable. For example, commercial real estate investment has significantly lower margins on average than uh, residential investment does. 
it's also quite a bit more challenging to get into if you don't have a background in it and requires more capital. So right off the bat, unless you know that you want to get into commercial and you've got some particular reasons for doing that, it's probably not something you should be looking at. Uh, don't, don't just go around poking at commercial buildings thinking it's the same thing as buying a couple of houses and leasing them out. Uh, it's totally different business. And you got to understand some of the nuances of that and what the financial expectations are and what your role is as the investor uh, in that kind of an arrangement uh, if you're going to get into that. So on the one hand, know what you want to do going in. On the other hand, keep your options open and understand the differences so you can analyze all the options on the table and pick what's going to make you the most money where you are right now. And the short-term, long-term thing is really a question you you kind of need to answer early on. Yes, so if you've got maybe five, $10,000 that you're going to throw at a real estate project and that's all of your money and you're going to need it back, you are looking at a short-term investment. Yeah. <laughs> not something that is a hold for three years. You're probably not looking at a rental. So just keep those kinds of things in mind when you're thinking about looking for deals that you can invest in, you got to know what's your time commitment here. Are you comfortable with parking your money for three years in a real estate investment? Because if you're not, rentals are not for you. <laughs> Those are Absolutely. long-term holds. It's also worth considering that for any short-term arrangement, there has to be a long-term contingency plan. Yep. If you started a flip, say, uh, in March of this year, <laughs> you may have been lucky to get that done and get that sold in the time frame you initially expected, but there's a good chance that you did not meet or perhaps still are struggling and not meeting your expected timeline for that. You've got to have an exit strategy that is a backup plan. You cannot count on necessarily being able to sell your flip immediately, mm -hmm. um, get a property rehabbed in the time frame that you expected or for the budget you expected. A big part of succeeding in real estate, like in any other business, and, mm -hmm. and this is really not different than any other business, is having layer upon layer upon layer of contingency plans, where hopefully the top five contingency plans all make you some money. <laughs> and it's plans five through 10 where you lose money, but hopefully not less, as much as you could less have. than you could have. <laughs> That's how it works. You, you can't just plan on things going well and have one route to achieving an acceptable outcome. You've got to have a lot of alternative approaches that will all get you some sort of a, a semblance of an acceptable outcome for yep. your project. And how do you learn those outcomes? By doing it. Yes. Like everyone has to learn from experience. Like people can tell you what the pitfalls are and you may or may not believe them until you've done it a couple of times on your own. So just because you had a deal that went terribly wrong the first time doesn't mean you're going to have the same problems the second time. Absolutely. Keep pushing forward. And considering the probability of the bad outcomes occurring and comparing that probability to the financial impact of those bad outcomes gives you a risk assessment for your project overall. And some of that is, is just straight up math. You look at the actual probability that something bad will happen and you calculate the financial impact of it and you risk adjust that, that financial outcome and see if that makes sense. And then you balance that against your expected profit if it goes well. And that's how you, you compare what your investment options are. Uh, but some of it is a little softer than that. You've just got to have a feeling for how likely some of the less common bad outcomes are to occur and balance that against the 
profit if you succeed as expected. That comes with experience, mm -hmm. but it also comes with a lot of hard work and a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of analysis. You got to run a lot of numbers. Do spreadsheets. <clears throat> yes. Create your Excel spreadsheet because when you make money in real estate investing, you make it when you buy. And Absolutely. that means you have got to do the math beforehand. You can't buy something because you have a great feeling about it and then find out you got to replace all the plumbing. Mm -hmm. You want to sell that property to someone who has a great feeling about it. Mm -hmm. That's who you want to sell it to is someone who's buying based on emotion because they like it. You don't have to like the property you're buying for an investment. In fact, you can hate it. You, as you long know, as it makes you money. As long as it makes you money, as long as you've got a plan that you think will succeed to sell that property to someone who really likes it later then that's fine. Yes. Um, but this isn't about emotion. You, you got to feel differently about your real estate uh, as an investor than as a typical homeowner. All the stuff you hear about the dream of owning a home and making it your own and how it's so beautiful and it's just such a wonderful thing to feel that you have your own place in this. That's marketing. That's somebody who does real estate for a living telling you that stuff. We They're want you making to like that your house. up. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Yes. But when course. you need to sell that thing for a profit, I need you to cut the emotional tie. <laughs> and when it's time to buy something for profit, buying something for an investment, no emotion is viable. If you fall in love with a house, you probably shouldn't invest in it. You're going to have a tough time letting it go. You're going to do weird stuff to it that other people may not like. It's just, it's not a good recipe. You got to be neutral and detached about this stuff if it's your business. And then you sell the emotion to your customer. <laughs> so a couple of pitfalls that you're probably wondering, what are the top? So yeah. ours are inspections are your friend. Absolutely. Pay the extra money. <laughs> and it is different buying an investment property and especially something that you're going to be doing work on. If you're planning a flip or, or even minor rehab, uh, or even if you're looking uh, like at a duplex or a fourplex that has some deferred maintenance, things that haven't been done on it that need to be updated. Man, don't guess at this. Dollars and cents make all the difference. Uh, even a 10 or 15% difference in bringing a property up to its current maintenance standard can make the difference between a good investment and a not very good investment on something like that. Just get the numbers done. You got to be working with contractors, working with property maintenance people before you team. purchase. Put your team together and they need to set their eyes on it. You don't filter this through yourself and just call them up and tell them what you're seeing. You need to get those people out there and pay them whatever you need to pay them for their expert opinions in detail on the exact condition of that property and exactly what needs to be done to it to bring it to the condition you want. Otherwise, you end up with these weird looking flips. And yep. if you've been looking at houses and you've seen a flip that's gone wrong, you know exactly what we're talking Absolutely. about. You see a property where you go into the closet and everything slopes downward. Yeah. And that was done post flip. Mm -hmm. Someone ran out of money. The whole back of the house is sloped. Because you know? it used to be an outdoor patio and it was sloped to drain and they didn't re-level it when they enclosed it. Yeah. I've been in two of those. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The couch is tilted backwards. Look, they're trying to sell that house. I, I remember one of those, I, it's probably the one you're thinking of, had been on the market for over 300 days with like $80,000 in price drops. They were pretty much certainly below their cost. They lost at money. At that point. <laughs> they, and it was not sold. Mm -hmm. um, so they really, really they lost their it. asses on that one. You really have to like... <laughs> 
identify these issues early on and fix them. Yeah. Uh, plumbing is a big one in houses here. Absolutely. Like houses prior to the 60s, you need to just scope your plumbing. Absolutely. Pay the extra money and get it done. I went under contract on a potential investment property that was built in the 40s. Um, had a sewer camera inspection done. And I went out there with the sewer camera guy. I always like to be there and see these things and talk it over with them as they're doing it. This is a great story. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but long story short, the house did not actually have a functioning sewer connection. The sewer pipe going to the main had disconnected. It had fallen apart underground. Who knows how long before? Underneath the detached garage under the middle of the detached garage. And it had made this giant underground cavern that all the sewage had been draining into for years. And uh, nobody knew about it because it wasn't clogged. It was just flowing into a big underground cave of sewage. So I canceled the contract on that house because that was not a problem I was interested in paying to fix. Months later, the whole backyard, I drove back by there, the whole backyard was dug up. Excavated. <laughs> huge excavation down. done. Yeah, and uh, the sellers had to eat that. That was uh, totally, totally worth the $700 I paid for, for that camera inspection. I mean, you may look at that and think, $700, that's money I'm never going to get back. Well, that's money well spent. That's money you should be spending every time you buy an old property. Yep. Check the windows, check the roof. And if you've got giant trees and mature landscaping, mm. it may be worthwhile to hire an arborist. Yeah, I would say more than maybe. I think you definitely need an inspection and opinion by a competent professional arborist if you have large trees on the property. And I'm talking a tree that's over 20 feet tall or a foot in diameter on the trunk. Uh, or if it looks suspect, if it's a smaller tree. Tilting towards <laughs> tilting the house. towards the house or planted right next to the foundation or, or some stupidity Crazy like that. Issue. Um, you know, you Removal either, of those things is expensive. Yeah, I was going to say, you can either get the inspection now or find out later that it's going to cost you five grand to remove that tree <laughs> and that it's going to have to be done immediately to avoid foundation damage. I, I mean, these things happen way more often than you would think. These are not uncommon problems. Uh, and as a real estate investor, you're going to have to deal with stuff like this. <laughs> so the more you know up front before you buy a property, the better you can budget and the more your profit is going to be. You'll be able yes. to identify deals that are actually worth pursuing because you got to remember, not every deal is a deal you should do. In fact, most, most deals are bad deals. You can make a deal with anybody for anything. Your neighbor will sell you their car right now if you pay them enough money. That doesn't mean it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> it is rarely a good idea. <laughs> yeah, just keep that in mind as you're sifting through all of, all of your potential real estate investing opportunities. But also, when you buy, do not over rehab that property. Nope. Everyone doesn't need marble everywhere. No. You got to target a particular price range, not just in terms of dollar value overall for the property, but in terms of dollars per square foot for yes. that property. And it needs to be comparable to other freshly rehabbed properties that have sold in the area. Now, this is pretty basic sounding stuff to people who've been in real estate investment. But if you haven't done this before, you this may is not. The biggest mistake. Yeah, you may not really understand how you go about getting a feel for what to do to a property. 
And the answer is you look at what other people are doing to similar properties in the area. You don't really want to be the first unless you're very comfortable and experienced with this and you're, you want to start a trend by moving into a neighborhood and buying several properties and flipping them. That's great, but it's not a starting point. The it's starting, expensive. Yes, it's expensive, requires a lot of capital, and there's a lot of risk because you're counting on being able to improve the overall character and valuation of a street or a neighborhood. Uh, by lifting some of its lesser properties to a better condition. What you probably would prefer to do as a new real estate investor is find an area that has active flipping and that is not already saturated, where there are still some good target properties. And this is tricky because everyone is trying to do that. You're competing with every other flipper. (laughs) That's how it's done. So you look at what's been sold in the area that has recently been flipped. And you look at the overall price for that property and you look at the price per square foot for those properties. And you got to look at the the finishes, the features that are included, all the details of the interior of that house that make it what it is. And you need to come up with a budget for doing that to your target property. And you'll figure out how much you can pay to buy that house when you figure out how much it will cost to do that stuff to the house and then what you're able to sell it for at the end. You got to work backwards and see what the most is that you can pay for that house that will give you an acceptable profit margin. And then pay less than that. Don't pay that. That's your bottom line. You can't pay more than that number you just calculated. You got to pay less, 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 less. Get the best deal you can. And as Rochelle said, most deals are not good deals. Don't take the first target property that barely meets your criteria get yourself a slate of 5, 10, 12 target properties that meet your criteria, both in terms of the property type, the overall value, and the potential profit margin on it. Build spreadsheets, compare your bad outcomes for these properties. What if you can't sell it for the price you want? What if you have to hold it and rent it? Uh, What happens uh, if your contractor um, just can't get the project done quickly enough and you have to hold it much longer than expected? All of these sorts of things need to be considered and figure out which of those 5, 10, 12 potential properties will get you the best outcome with the least risk and do that one. Does this sound like a lot of work? It is a lot of work. Because it is. We're talking about (laughs) hundreds of thousands of dollars here. This is not easy doing this, you know, the HTV era makes it look like you just pick up a sledgehammer and you just go to work. And that is just not the case. Those are professionals. They already knew beforehand what they were going to make, how much it was going to cost, and they have a formula. You have to go in knowing what you're doing. And this isn't higher math. You don't Mm -mm. have to know calculus. You do have to understand the time value of money and be able to calculate um, interest, profit, ROI, pretty basic calculations involving your financing Uh, you got to be comfortable with that stuff, but it really is arithmetic. And if you dedicate a day or two to reading about time value of money calculations, present value, uh, ROI calculation, things like that, mortgage amortization, um, (laughs) we're nerds, but people who are good at this are nerds. You got to know that stuff. You got to be a nerd. Yeah. You know, you don't have to do higher math to be able to pull it off, but you do have to be able to build a spreadsheet and, and really understand it. So that's worth it. Yeah. Um, that's how you avoid losing money. And that's what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> and of uh, course, sunk cost. Yeah. Uh, oh, before we move on to sunk cost, I wanted, you mentioned don't over improve the property. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
this this goes this along with, with what I was rambling about, about looking at uh, other completed flips in the neighborhood. You got to know what you can actually get someone to buy. And installing a new swimming pool in the backyard is probably not something you're going to get your money back for. If what it is, makes sense, it makes sense. Yeah. But it doesn't always make sense. You know, if you're yeah. going to improve the property at something like $50 a square foot, you really needed to do the math on that long before you spent the cash. Yep. Absolutely. There are a lot of types of improvements that are almost never worth doing. And there are other improvements that are almost always worth doing. Mm -hmm. And figuring out which is which for your particular property is a big part of the game. Fixing functional obsolescence is always a good one. Yes. If you're fixing a house and you're doing a flip and the washer and dryer is still in the kitchen, I'm going to be mad. Yep. Move that laundry. (laughs) (laughs) If there's no closet in the master bedroom, you should probably fix that. Yeah. Solve the problems that obviously need to be solved because those are actually worth, they're worth it. They pay themselves off in dividends. And really that's a a big part of picking good target properties for improvement is finding properties that have weird, stupid crap going on with them. That were well loved. They were well loved, but but very stupid to begin with. They put the laundry in the living room or there's... You know, a wet bar in the bathroom. The bath, the master bath is all the way across the house from the bedroom. Yeah. Um, all of these things actually exist. There mm-hmm. are tons of houses out there that are just chopped up into weird pieces. It, it don't make any sense internally. And you got to look at that carefully and you got to bring your contractor with you to help talk through how you actually change this because there may be a reason nobody's done it to that house before. They've got to move all of the plumbing, (laughs) which requires you to open the slab. Exactly. (laughs) If you have to do all new under slab plumbing, you got to move structural walls, stuff like that. It's probably not a good candidate. But every now and then you're going to find a house that is vastly uh, underpriced compared to others in the area because of some weird stuff that was done to it. And people just walk into it and they go, what the heck is this? This is ridiculous. Now I'm not buying this, but it's easy to fix. Mm -hmm. And if you find one of those, that is the perfect target for for investment because (laughs) you can put a little bit of effort into it and And make it a whole lot of problems that were knocking a hundred grand off its value. Yep. That's a great way to go. Yes. But don't over improve. Some and, cost. And don't do it weird. Yeah, don't do it weird. Don't do stupid stuff people don't want to buy. You're not building the house for yourself and your own personal tastes. <laughs> the whole idea <laughs> is to make something that will sell to most people who are looking at houses. Yes. <laughs> do, do weird stuff to your own house. <laughs> yes. If you like purple, feel free. Purple carpet, purple walls all day. Yep. You, you won't be able to sell it like that, but if you're going to live there, you might as well like it. Yep, absolutely. Don't do that to an investment. Okay, sunk costs. When I was in undergrad and I was in construction management, I had to take a bunch of finance and business courses. And one of them was engineering econ, which was a weed out course for second year engineering and construction management students taught by a real hard ass. And he was absolutely dedicated to ramming principles of financial and fiscal management into the heads of these young engineers so they would understand what it is that they do for the companies they work for <laughs> and <laughs> how you make money and how you lose it. And he absolutely hammered into our skulls that sunk costs do not count for future analysis. What this means is that once you have spent a dollar on something or $100,000 on something, it doesn't matter what you paid when you are considering your future investments in that project. 
This is a nuanced concept, but an important one. If you overpay for the house that you buy as a real estate investment, you must immediately forget that you overpaid for it. Because when considering your next steps, the changes you're going to make to that property in order to sell it, at this point, you are in damage control mode because you overpaid. But that doesn't mean that you should skimp on your renovation. It means you should still optimize your renovation exactly the same way as if you had paid an appropriate price and just as if your project were going to be profitable, because that will still get you the best outcome. Yep. If you can invest another dollar and make a dollar twenty on that dollar when you sell, that's a good investment, even if you already overpaid and even if you're going to come out negative on the project as a whole. There's a lot more reading to do on this subject, and we're not an econ podcast, so I'm no. not going to go into more detail. But if you want to succeed at any type of investment activity, and especially in real estate, it's important to understand why disregarding sunk cost matters. Yes. Because it results in so many poor business decisions that cost people tremendous amounts of money in the end because they just don't get this concept. It's like that house <laughs> with the slope, right, in the yep. back that didn't sell. Like, because they probably spent too much on the renovation, Absolutely. they ran out of money to fix the one thing that would have almost guaranteed that they would have not lost as much money. Absolutely. There is a flip uh, fairly near my office that's for sale that was a very small house in very poor condition that was purchased by a flipper uh, and they did a complete redo. It was beyond down to the studs. They basically reconstructed the entire house from scratch because it had so much damage. They took out the floors uh, to dirt uh, replaced framing in large portions of it, recited. Uh, the, the entire interior and exterior of this little 700-square-foot house is completely new. And because they had to do so much extra work compared to what they intended, and because they paid too much for the property in the first place, they really skimped on their interior finishes when they finished this place out. That is an example of the sunk cost fallacy affecting decision-making. If they had thought about this in advance, and I'm sure they did, they would have realized that that property needed to be done fairly well in the neighborhood that it's in, especially the size that it is. It had to be carefully crafted and very attractive with upper mid-range fit and finish on the interior. But instead, they didn't because they ran out of money and they needed to come in on budget uh, and they had spent too much already. And the result was that they built this thing out like a uh, $120 a square foot cheap apartment and they're never going to be able to sell it. The fit and the finish is bad. The support the, that. The flooring, the fixtures, the doors, all of it is just super cheap. And they're trying to sell this thing for over 300 grand because that's what the neighborhood can support. It's still for sale. It's been a long time now. It's not going to work out for them. Yeah. And the problem is when people are looking to buy your investment property, they don't want to have to spend a bunch more money. No. Like they just want to move in. And they, of course, do not care at all what you paid for it. Nope. <laughs> Your profit or loss is irrelevant to the person who's going to buy it from you. If you make a hundred grand on that house, your buyer is still going to be happy. If you lose a hundred grand, your buyer does not care. They're still going to be happy. They're still going to be happy with their house. Yeah. Yep. So do not fall into the sunk cost fallacy. Yep. Remember that. And when you're feeling like you're falling into it, Google it again and remember why you can't. <laughs> exactly. You, and, and what it comes down to is if you get yourself in a losing position, you got to make the best of it. And making the best of it often means uh, that you're going to continue to invest quite a bit more money beyond what you expected in order to minimize your loss. 
and you take it as a, a learning experience and avoid that the next time around. Yeah. You don't make yeah. any money if you can't sell the house. That's right. <laughs> Unless you rent it. Unless you rent it. That's one of your other options. You Rentals. can build a giant rental portfolio. Rental portfolios are great. Yeah. But you can't be over leveraged, which is a mistake a lot of people make. They have yep. a mortgage. They charge the renter maybe a hundred bucks more a month. And that's not going to cover it. It's not yeah. going to cover your deferred maintenance, your management fees, yeah. uh, the things that you're going to just need to do yeah. to the property. So before you get in the rental market, there's some math you have to do beforehand. A lot of math. Yeah. Rental is tight. Yep. Um, commercial rental, even much more so, which is slim why I mentioned margins. that that's, that's more advanced real estate investment. The margins are very slim in commercial rental, especially uh, strip mall, small commercial, things like that. It's a tight business. Residential, it's still pretty tight, especially if you're doing commodity type rentals. If they're duplexes, fourplexes, uh, small single family homes, those types of rentals run thin margins because it's very price driven in the market. Uh, your renters need the least rent they can get. They need to get the most value for their money. And that means you've got to run a tight ship. Yes. But usually when you're looking at real estate investing, like how much money do you make? You're not going to make a hundred grand on a flip, you know, like conservatively, maybe 15 or 20 is a great place to start and a good place to aim for. And you need a couple of them, obviously, to grow to the extent that you want. But real estate is not easy. It is not cheap. And it does take a lot of work. And it's worth noting, the margins on flips have shrunk a lot in the last few years. Back in 2012 or so, as we were recovering from the major crash, margins on flips could be 30 40%. Uh, maybe even higher if you did well. Yeah, uh, People just made a killing on good flips because it really came down to who had cash to buy the properties and pay for the flip in the first place. Since then, uh, the market has leaned out a lot and matured a lot. And the operators who are still flipping in the Phoenix metro area tend to be pretty smooth about it. And they're, they're running pretty tight margins. They can take a 15 or 20% expected profit uh, and make that work well. Uh, whereas... If you're new at it, if you're not that comfortable with it, uh, 15 or 20% may be your margin of error, or at least 10% may be your margin of error. Uh, And you don't want to have a margin of error in project cost that is close to your profit margin on that project, because then you're threatening to wipe yourself out completely. Um, And that's not a good place to be in. So yet again, this comes back to most deals are not good deals. Pick your deals very carefully. You make your money at the beginning, not at the end. Agreed. Yep. So that's all we've got on real estate investing, and it's already been freaking forever. Oh, let's see. What else? There's more to talk about. On There's real always more, investing. but we're oh, running yeah. out of time. Permits and contracts. Oh, we got to mention that. Yeah, your team. This goes yeah. back to having a good team, having a good contractor. Everyone needs one. Everyone's always looking for a referral for a good contractor. If you know any, freaking tell us about them. (laughs) And your major upgrades need to be permitted and done by licensed contractors. And you've got to keep the paperwork on it. Uh, This didn't used to be the case. You may be thinking, no, I know people who did a bunch of flips and that was all under the radar. Yeah, that was a while ago. Um, The house that we are sitting in right now was originally an under the radar flip. Uh, They got a stop work notice and it cost them about 10 grand to tear open walls that were already closed Uh, have licensed contractors come in and fix stuff uh, and then get it inspected and permitted at the end. That was before I bought it. It worked out. They ended up making money on that deal anyways, but they weren't happy about it. And lots of people have run into that type of situation since. Um, And it's because there were so many people doing flips after the crash 
who were trying to do it under the radar and using handymen and unlicensed contractors, there really is some enforcement on that now. Uh, and the law does require that you use licensed contractors, that you get permits for your major work. Um, and we're not talking about paint and baseboards, stuff like that. But if you're moving walls, if you're rewiring, replumbing, things like that need to be permitted and done by proper contractors. It's a really big deal when it's not, yes. and it'll cause you headaches and a lot more money than you expect. It will be found out when you go to sell yep. the house, and it will stall your transaction, and you will be stuck with that property until you fix it. So don't fall into the trap. Yep. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening. Today's show was brought to you by Xfern, helping people with financial transaction planning. Whether you want to buy a car, a house, or real estate portfolio, we can help you reach your goal and you can find us online at xfernlaw.com. Well, that was a pretty specific plug. Yes, it was. <laughs> so just to recap, uh, beware of the coronavirus antibody test scam. Remember, you have options for dealing with credit card debt and don't forget to submit your PP loan, PPP loan forgiveness application. Absolutely. And on the real estate side, when investing, know your finances, know what you want. And remember, you make your money when you buy. Mike, you want to tell everybody who you are again? Absolutely. I'm Mike Poulton with the law firm Poulton and Royan. Uh, we provide business law services and business consulting here in Phoenix. You can find us online at www.pnlaw.pro. And I'm Rochelle Poulton, your favorite consumer rights attorney, and you can find me at xfirmlaw.com. And you can find us and me, your favorite real estate agent, I hope, at azownit.com. And right here is our fun dog, Bobbles, and you can find her under the table. Yep, she's been here the whole time, <laughs> rocking and rolling. <laughs> Thanks so much, Phoenix, and talk to you next time.